This podcast is brought to you by Invesco QQQ. Anyone can become an agent of innovation. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Invesco Distributors, Inc. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at cuttereconomicforum.com. Welcome to Trillions. I'm Joel Weber. And I'm Eric Balchunas. Eric, the past week has been an interesting one, to say the least, in the markets, right? There was a jobs report that came out on Friday. A new Fed share started on Monday. And then we saw some red, a lot of red. And it kind of rebounded the following day. But there, there's a lot of turbulence in the market right now. And a lot of investors, especially if you're new to investing, are seeing red in a way that they've never seen before because we've, we've been in this epic bull market for, for almost a decade now. Yeah, it started to seem like utopia. Like you're just, especially with the Fed and how they kind of had the markets back for a while. Then Trump won. That was another catalyst. Just been this Tax nice- Tax reform. Yeah. Yeah. There's always some reason to buy, right? Yep. And now we've gotten some shakiness. And for me, it was very unfortunate because I am in Philly on Sunday night. The Eagles win. Oh. I didn't get to bed till three in the morning on Sunday. And I took Monday off to sort of just relish the Eagles victory. And I get start getting emails about some of these the volatility ETFs. So around three o'clock, I kind of was uh, woken from that Eagles dream and into reality and spent the last basically 48 hours uh, dealing with uh, a lot of issues around the, the sell-off and volatility products and what have you. Which is is what we're going to dedicate this whole episode to this week, because we've talked a lot about ETFs, but they have some cousins that are called ETNs. And these all fit under something called an ETP, which are exchange-traded products. ETN stands for exchange-traded notes, and ETFs are exchange-traded funds. Those three things are very different things. Yeah, look, I mean, they went out and basically wrapped up everything you could possibly think of into an ETF or an ETN. We call that ETPs. Imagine a zoo, right? There's different categories. And there's there's some stuff in there that's highly exotic. You know the reptile area? <laughs> the kingdom. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That area, it can bite, you know? And I think there's some... It, that happens. Every couple of years, you see investors who might have gotten a little too um, they, naive they about... They went from the petting zoo to the reptile section? Right, yes, yeah. exactly. Straight from petting the sheep into playing with the python. We also have joining us your colleague, James Seifert, who's an ETF associate analyst with Bloomberg Intelligence. And we're going to talk about something I'm really excited to talk about because it's brand new. You guys just kicked it off. It's like available now on the Bloomberg Terminal. It's hot. It's hot. The ETF stoplight system. We could say we dropped it, right? You dropped it. Okay, we dropped it. This week on Trillions, the ETF stoplight system to save you from yourself. Okay, Eric, ETF stoplight system. What is the genesis of that? Right. So... ETFs are a wild, it's just a huge spectrum of products. And over the years, I've been finding that if you talk to like a financial advisor network, we call them wirehouses, where they have a large network of advisors, I found they'll put ETFs into two categories. Either they're on the approved list or they're not, right? 
And the media, there tends to be they're safe or they're dangerous. But to me, there's much more nuance than that. And the other problem is what's dangerous to one person might be godsend to another. You know, there could be a product that's triple leveraged junior gold miners. Now, I don't know what you just said, but <laughs> triple leveraged gold miners. Okay. Just know you could lose or make a lot very quickly. Yep. These are products that I call trading tools. And for cer- certain investors, they're great. These are like power tools. And then for other investors, they would be horrible, right? But they're all kind of put into this big area we call ETFs. And some aren't even technically ETFs. We'll get to that in a minute. But arguably, I thought movie ratings would be useful for ETFs. Which you, know, you did in your book. Right. And I wrote this in my book. You know, there's like five ratings, G, PG, PG-13, R, and NC-17, mm-hmm. right? Because look, at the end of the day, just because children exist doesn't mean people shouldn't be allowed to see a Quentin Tarantino movie, right? We want him to make okay. his movies- Fair. But we don't want, like, my, I don't want my son to see The Hateful Eight. Yep. Not right. until he's at least 10 years old. <laughs> he's like nine right now, right? Yeah. Right. <laughs> well, my dad let me watch The Exorcist when I was 11. Whoa. I'm still recovering yeah. from that. Whoa. Anyway, look, movie ratings are great because the other problem with rating systems out there for ETFs is they might tell you buy, sell, hold, right? Whether they think the underlying is going to go up or down. We don't do that at BI. There's also rating systems like from, that are targeting advisors. And they'll throw all the crazy stuff out the window. They won't even rate them. They're like, they don't exist. They're awful. But at Bloomberg, you know, our terminal users are sophisticated. So we wanted a system that could be used regardless of who the investor is or what their goal, whether it's a small hedge fund, my grandma or an advisor in Oklahoma, telling you what the rating is gives you advanced information to know the level of nasty surprise that could be within the product. Right. This is a helpful way to avoid having a bad experience. So again, it's like movie ratings. That way you know what's appropriate to take your kid to. So James, the thing here is that you couldn't use movie ratings, right? Yeah, that's that's copyrighted. So we had to come up with something else. So we came up with the stoplight, green, yellow, red, pretty simple. McDonald's simple in Eric's world. <laughs> it's not as exciting as saying, hey, this ETF's rated R. Yeah. That's pretty cool. But yeah. it tells you advanced information about what you should be doing or yep. what to be uh, thinking about. Okay, so... We've also said something called exchange-traded notes, and we need to talk about that because an exchange-traded note or an ETN is not the same thing as an exchange-traded fund. So what is an ETN? It's an unsecured debt obligation, and really, they probably shouldn't be in the whole ETF uh, universe, but they kind of just got grandfathered in about 12, 15 years ago. They were originally launched to go out and track areas that ETFs couldn't. Like, for example, India, 15 years ago, you couldn't get in there as a foreign investor. So an ETN could say, okay, we'll track an India index, but it's a note. Just know that that's what we're doing. You don't know what we're investing in. So they'll just, it's sort of like saying, just trust this. And so that's why they don't report holdings because you don't exactly know what they're doing. Largely, they do invest in the underlying to hedge themselves, but that's ultimately what it was designed for at the beginning. Now, over time, all those things have opened up and ETFs track them. And most people would rather have the ETF, which physically holds what it says it holds. But ETNs have hung around for one big reason. They're essentially a tax loophole. So in the cases of like futures, ETFs to track futures get taxed uh, in an unfortunate way. You get a K-1 because it's like your tax, like you hold futures. Whereas an ETN, they don't hold it, so they're taxed like shares of Microsoft. Mm -hmm. So people who don't want to deal with the sort of fussy taxation Mm -hmm. will use the ETN and stomach the fact that it's a note and comes with credit risk. So if the issuer of an ETN, like Barclays has some, yep. if they go bankrupt, you could lose all your money. Right. Which happened with Lehman, actually. Yeah, Lehman had a couple. Bear Stearns had one. Right. And the, you know, the bedrock of the ETF is the fact that it's built on the 40 Act. Yes. Right? Which is what's made it you know, be this stable thing for as long as it's been around. 
ETNs do not have that, right? They're not built on that 40x, so they're basically unregulated in the same way, right? They're they're regulated to a degree, they're, but yeah. yeah, they're under the 1933 Act, so they're still regulated, just not to the scrutiny that ETFs are in the 1940 Act. And they're in some areas that are really interesting, and yes. one of those areas is volatility. And there's been a dearth of volatility of late in the markets, right? And so a lot of people piled into a certain kind of trade and. I'll let you pick it up here. What was that trade? So this was a trade that you short VIX futures. And VIX is volatility. Yeah, VIX is basically and, and VIX VIX the VIX index, let's take a step back. The VIX index is tracking the volatility on options on the S&P 500. In other words, if there's volatility on options, it means people are looking to buy insurance on their portfolio. That's what mm-hmm. you do with puts. Mm-hmm. So if that starts going up, it means people are nervous, right? Now they have futures tracking the VIX, which you can't invest in. The futures market is what the ETFs hold. Most of them go long, which is they hold the futures, and like just like the oil ETF holds oil futures. But a new uh, category came out that shorts them. Now, what this does is it sort of puts you in the position of being like an, a hurricane insurance company. You're selling risk. So as long as there's no problems, you collect this nice premium. I mean, it's really nice. That thing went up the uh, inverse VIX ETN went up about 600% in the last two years. Just inching up, inching Inch, up, inching up. That's more That's more like stepping up. I mean, yeah. that's some serious... They co- equate it to picking up nickels in front of a steamroller, but those are like $5 bills. And then the steamroller came. Yes. Uh, a hurricane from hell came, and basically it lost 95% in a day. So because of this low-vol environment, normally you'd have more hiccups along the way, and you wouldn't see that level of mm-hmm. event. But there's been such this placidness over the last couple of years that... When it hit, man, it made up for lost time. Right. And actually, Bloomberg News has done some really interesting reporting around this of volatility as an, you know, volatility inc. is the idea, right? There's so much money wrapped up in volatility now that it's almost become its own asset class. Yeah. This is part of the reason I think this stoplight system is timely because some of these products are useful for people who know what they're doing. Say you're a small hedge fund, you don't have access to some big prime broker. Oh, all right. You know how to trade these things. Go for it. The problem is they're not labeled. And so if you're a retail investor, you may not understand the inner workings of VIX futures. So a big debate now is whether to just ban these things or, as we're proposing, label them. Because there are people who actually might still be able to use them. They're just not your grandmother. Yeah. And, and the ETFs did what they were supposed to do. VIX futures rose 95% that day. So you got the inverse of that. It's not like they right. failed as a product. They just What they held just kind of went to hell. This podcast is brought to you by Invesco QQQ. What do all the greatest innovations have in common? Agents, people who participate in progress by supporting cutting-edge ideas. Invesco QQQ is a fund that allows you access to innovators of the NASDAQ 100 all-in-one fund. So you don't have to be an inventor to help create what's next to come. Anyone can become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. There are risks when investing in ETFs, including possible loss of money. ETF risks are similar to those of stocks. Investments in the tech sector are subject to greater risk and more volatility than more diversified investments. The NASDAQ 100 Index comprises the 100 largest non-financial companies on the NASDAQ. You can't invest directly into an index. Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit Invesco.com for a prospectus containing this information. Read it carefully before investing. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Okay, so we had this big sell-off, and you guys have this new stoplight system. 
Let's talk about one of the ETNs, the inverse VIX, XIV. I'm looking here at your stoplight system. It's got a red light and seven points. James, that sounds bad. Yeah, yeah, that is that is bad. So uh, the highest we have on our system is a is a ten. So a seven is pretty high up. Is there. anything a ten? Uh, yeah, we have one, we have one thing that's a ten on our system. What's right? that? It's actually another ETN that's three times leveraged on oil, crude oil, and it's actually listed OTC. It has a lot of tons of different issues surrounding it. So yeah, this would be like almost beyond NC seventeen. Yeah, I mean, this would be almost like banned by the government. Yeah, it's a, like Times Square circa nineteen seventy. Yeah, when it was fun. <laughs> Let's walk through the rating system so we get a better sense of why something could be a 7 out of 10 or a 10 out of 10 or maybe like a 0 out of 10. Does that exist? Yeah, 0 out of 10s exist. There's a, a lot of the market is 0 out of 10s. Most of Vanguard's funds are 0 out of 10. Th- that's like the G category. That's mm-hmm. like it's safe for grandma to just go to town with. Now, that's not to say the ETF will always go up. Again, it's just to say there's nothing odd that's going to make you go, oh, I didn't know that would happen. The system technically could go higher than 10. We just don't have any that we rate that hit that number. That's like mind-blowing. I mean, look, the S&P 500 ETFs, uh, the aggregate bond ETFs, all the stuff that generally is used as building blocks for a portfolio is all green zero. All systems go. Have fun. The green category likely makes up about 75% of ETF assets. And at what point do you get a yellow light or a red light? When you get one point in our system or one infraction, whatever you want to call it, and then to get to a red light, you need three points or, or an infraction and then it of goes three up from points. There. Okay. Yeah, so yellow light is sort of like PG, PG-13 area mm-hmm. in terms of uh, violations. And, you know, look, we don't just look at, like, whether it holds leverage or futures. There's some legit things on here that I think are um, also uh, eye-opening about due diligence on ETFs. Right. So let's talk about them. Alternative tax treatment. So that's the first one on the list. So that basically looks at anything that has an alternative tax treatment. If you invest in futures, you have to deal with what's called a K-1, which can be complicated, more paperwork that a lot of people don't want to deal with. Um, The other thing is something like gold, which is taxed as a collectible, which many people don't realize. So invest in a gold ETF, you're not actually going to be taxed in the same way that you would investing in a normal equity ETF. Yeah, GLD is a great example because other other than that tax issue, it's completely fine. It holds the gold. It does a great job tracking. No problem. But if you do sell it, you, you're taxed as if you held like one of those gold plates from you know the commercial during Fox News or whatever, you know what I mean, where you're actually holding a collectible. That is a different taxation system. And I've heard some investors are a little uh, mildly surprised by that. Green light? Yellow light. Yellow light. Yeah. Alternative weighting scheme. So this one is just saying that the ETF is weighting its underlying assets by something other than market cap. So market cap meaning you're, it's just a broad investable index like the S&P 500, but you can get equal weight S&P 500, which will give you more volatility because it's going to give higher weighting to those smaller cap funds or right. smaller cap equities. So one thing that would fit in this category then would be smart beta ETFs, which have become really popular lately. And we haven't really talked about them yet, and we will talk about them more. But Eric, what, what is that? It's just a fantastic buzzword. But really, all it is is applying to anything that isn't market cap weighted. So if you have the S&P 500, Apple's at the top, right? And then Exxon and down you go. The biggest companies get the most weighting. Smart Beta says, let's do something different. Let's equal weight those stocks, give the smaller ones more voice. Let's weight them by their fundamentals. Let's look at stocks with lower PEs. Let's weight them by their momentum. Mm-hmm. You know, there's all different ways you can weight them. So it's a twist on the market cap weighted index. But in reality, it's actually taking active strategies that have worked for many years and converting them into a rules-based index. So smart beta sort of fills that void between discretionary active, where you just do what you want, 
and pure passive market cap weighted. We want people to know there's something in there that you should probably just look at, and that is all smart beta gets an immediate yellow. Yeah, right. yeah the other thing to note is that n- none of this nuts is necessarily saying this is a bad ETF or this is a bad situation. This is just something that to make people aware of what's going on. Perhaps it, proceed with caution. Here's a great yeah. example. XOP, which is the oil producers ETF, it's equal weighted, and it has uh, two-thirds mid and small caps. It's triple the volatility, right? of XLE, which is uh, the Spider Energy ETF, which you think those are kind of similar, but XLE is market cap weighted, mostly large caps. This one is equal weighted, and it's a smaller area of the oil energy, or the energy area. Mm-hmm. And that is a lot of extra vol right there. Right. You can go up and down pretty fast in XOP. That's why it gets a yellow. Next factor that you guys looked at, potential NAV tracking issues. So how do, how do you guys factor this in? So so NAV is the just basically the underlying value of what the fund is actually holding. So an ETF has a NAV and a price. Um, so when you buy, you're buying at the price. You're not buying at the NAV. So what you expect in a passively managed ETF or really any ETF, you expect to be buying at a value that where the price is equal to the NAV. So any ETF where there's some discrepancy between the price and the NAV over extended periods of time, that's unexpected losses. So even if you're talking only a couple of basis points or percentages of percentage points, it, it can really affect your return. And what does NAV stand for? Net asset value. It's basically what you know the uh, Kelly Blue Book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. you know the cars. Yeah, it's what the value of those stocks are worth. So you, sh- everybody wants to buy something close to that Kelly Blue Book value, right? Right, or sell your car for it. Yeah, yeah. There you go. That is sort of what the NAV is as a metaphor. But ultimately, you want to be close to it, and that's what people love about ETFs: is that the price that you that it trades at is close to the NAV. Because if it gets out of whack, people can come in and arbitrage the difference. Right. That's what you don't have in closed-end funds, and right. people don't like those for that reason. The other part of this is think about what an ETF's sole mission in life is. It's to track an index. So we're also going to ding it if it doesn't do a good job at that. Right. We want to let you know because arguably the distance between the index return and the ETF's return is really the total cost. Yeah. The expense ratio comes out of that. And then sometimes they do a little better than the expense ratio. Sometimes they do worse. We're trying to capture that to make sure you know there's actually some extra tracking cost in here that you're going to have to pay for. Next factor. Fund is actively managed because there are actively managed ETFs. Yeah. So um, especially on the fixed income side, there's, right. a, there's, a lot, there's a significant assets on, that are actively managed, meaning there's, there's a fund manager actually going in there and picking specific securities. It's growing in popularity on the equity side and basically all over ETFs, but it's still a very small aspect of the ETF and market. The, and these are big name bond guys. Right. Yeah. You got people like Jeffrey Gunlock, and then you have at, people at double line. Exactly. Yep. And Pimco. Um, and Pimco. There's a lot of active big bond asset managers that have ETFs. It's not bad to be active in an ETF. However, sometimes people assume it's all passive. Again, it's just to alert you that this is a this is an ETF where the manager is doing whatever they want, and you just should know that. Right. Uh, hidden fees. So this one gets a little complicated. There's a lot of different ways that ETFs can have hidden fees, right? So um, one of the big things that people have been talking about are these interest rate hedged ETFs. So what they're doing is they're trying to hedge out the risk from rising interest rates. Um, but there's costs in shorting that. You're, you're paying the cost in whatever the interest rate is to short the interest rate. So look, there's a lot of ETFs that I call package trades. They go long this and short that, right? And they're yeah, o- Which is kind of phenomenal when you think about it. That alone is that, yellow. Yeah. But arguably, the reason those get yellow is because they have hidden costs. Right. The shorting, when you short, you got to pay. You got to pay for that. 
So what's the degree of that? We want to let you know that that's what it is. There's also hidden fees in like um, funds that own other funds. There's acquired fund fees mm-hmm. that you, that aren't reported all the time. This there's, is like the really super fine print at the very bottom. Yes, and there's MLP ETFs which have these incredibly awful taxation issues. We throw all that in into hidden fees that aren't necessarily reported in the expense ratio. By the way, how many ETFs have you guys put through this gauntlet? So basically, when we start, we we look for ETFs that have at least one year of history, so we can say that they've been trading or alive for one year, and they have at least $50 million in assets. So right now, we're just over 1,100 ETFs are classified. Those are That's going to be 99% of the assets in volume. However, we might expand it. If we get some traction on this, we may just rate them when they come out, like a movie. Um, and you know that way, people know what they're getting into right away. We won't be able to... Some of these won't be... Will be moot because you need... Ex- uh, you know, yeah, you, you uh, history. history yeah. yeah, but some of these you could write right, right away. Credit risk. So this is directly related to what we talked about before with exchange traded notes. Exchange traded notes have credit risks. There are unsecured debt obligations issued by big banks, Credit Suisse, UBS, uh, you name it. Here's another one. Less liquid holdings. Yeah, right? so there was debate on what we wanted to call this because we didn't really want to call it illiquid holdings because if the holdings were truly illiquid, then there really wouldn't be an ETF. But um, there are plenty of assets that have been wrapped in the ETF wrapper that are considered less liquid. So you got high-yield debt instruments such as bank loans or high-yield corporate bonds, which don't really trade that often. Mm-hmm. ETF trades multiples of times more per day than the underlying assets. You also have things like frontier markets like Vietnam. Um where the equity doesn't trade nearly as much as something like a U.S. stock. The high-yield bond area is really where we wanted to capture this because I've always said HYG and JNK, the two junk bond ETFs, are PG-13. They hold what they hold. I mean, they're long the bonds. There's There's no derivatives, nothing weird. But let's just face it. They're holding something that doesn't trade a lot. Only about, I don't know, less than half the bonds trade every day inside HYG. It's traded over the counter. And there's a lot of people concerned about this. So we want to make sure that we're sensitive to that concern. But to me, they're not like, don't ever use them. But this is perfect yellow light PG-13 area. Good advice is always to be, if, if you're looking at an ETF and you wouldn't invest in the underlying asset or what it's tracking, you probably shouldn't be investing in ETF because it's just an instrument to get access to those markets. That probably should be at the top of everybody's you know ETF due diligence guide. That is so true. You're outsourcing the work of going to do it yourself, Mm -hmm. but it doesn't change the underlying. Especially when you add something like leverage, right? What's leverage? So leverage in the ETF space is primarily done through swaps and derivatives and really complicated instruments. But what they'll do is they'll do the same thing as most ETFs. They'll try to track an index, but they're daily leveraged, right? So it's going to look at the ETF or the index. So for example, the S&P 500, if the S&P 500 goes up, 5%, 5%, and this is a three, 3x levered ETF, that day that ETF should go up 15%. And they're also inverse leverage. So if it's three times inverse, it will go down 15%. So not only do you have this wildly volatile area, but you, these are swap agreements. So there's some counterparty risk there. This is a company going to different banks, sort of like the guys in the big short to get the subprime mm-hmm. mortgage. And they're saying, let's just do a swap agreement on the side. The good news is they use several. So mm-hmm. if one bank were to blow up, there's other ones there. And they reset them all the time. So they're always mixing it up. That said, the real issue, though, is that you can go up or down a lot in a day. Like, you know, we look at something like a triple leveraged uh, gold miners back to that one. Right. That can go up 15% in a day or down 15%. And there's been evidence that, like on TD Ameritrade, you know, there's some individual investors who use these things. Th- this should be a total red light don't, simply because of the fact of the leverage. But then on top of that, when you reset the leverage every day, 
if there's volatility, you're resetting all over the place. Yeah. And so over the long term, that volatility drag will wipe you out. So even if the index had gone up in that year, mm. that volatility, you could be down if you bought and hold it. So leverage ETFs should be treated like hot potatoes. They traded. Major red light. Power tools. Yeah, yeah. you could lose a hand. Uh, dangerously low volume was one uh, that we can talk about. If it's got low, low volume, things not trading that much. So I, I feel bad because there's this volume addiction. If it trades a lot, people just trade it more and they think that's what they should do. But the, you have this opposite problem where like the lesser liquid ones have such a hard problem getting like an audience. It's like a party nobody's at. Um, Never been to one of those. You could. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm just picturing your whole high school years right now. <laughs> Hi, guys. <laughs> <laughs> okay, sorry. That was too hearty of a laugh. I, I like you more than that. Um, listen, dangerously low volume isn't that you can't trade them. Is that you probably should use a limit order. You should use, Don't just put a market order in because when they're low volume, a lot of times the spread on the screen will be a little wider, meaning what somebody will pay versus what they'll sell. That's the spread. That's sort of like your toll going in and out of it. So you could put a limit order in the middle of that, though, and actually get a price. They put the wide spreads on those lesser liquid ones. So that's really the warning there. But I would, you know, open up the door to people because if you just go to the highly liquid ETFs, you're essentially trading stuff that came out in the 90s, might not be the cheapest, might not be the best exposure. So you do want to maybe look deeper in the toolbox. But if you see yellow, dangerously low volume, really that should just tell you that, okay, let me just be careful trading it. Let me buy uh, using a limit order. And by the way, if something has low volume and you're worried about it closing, it can close. But with ETFs, you don't lose all your money. On ETN, you can. That's the credit risk. But an ETF holds the security. So if it closes, it basically just sends a letter saying, look, we this product didn't really work, right? Like the uh, the waste management ETF or the fish, how about the fishing ETF? Mm. Holds a bunch of Japanese and Norwegian stocks. Didn't make it. So on the closure date, they sell those stocks and give you a check for your NAV. We should add that most of the ones that got dinged with this were actually ETNs that basically don't trade like less than once a month. So mm. we're talking like seriously low volume on the exchanges. Yeah, we're like, yeah, they barely trade at all. How many of those actually just end up folding? A lot. Um, and more should. I think they should. If, if you don't have like a trade in your product like every day, at least one trade, you should probably just close. I mean, that is really like ignored. I mean, there's even products that are less than say $10 million trading a day, which many investors won't touch. They'll look for at least 50 million a day, but that only gets you 160 ETFs. So then you got to go deeper and deeper. But there is probably, I don't know, four or 500 ETFs that I think are probably better off just closing. Okay, so we got two more. Uh, discount or premium issues being one of them. Yeah, so we talked about this a little bit before with the potential NAV tracking errors. Um, but the discount premium issues take really take into account the difference between the NAV and the price. So before when we talked about the tracking issues, we were talking about performance solely. So over the last year or two years or whatever it may be, the index outperformed or underperformed the actual ETF. So um, discount premium issues just looks at on a given day, say you need to sell in a given time period. For example, Egypt when Egypt closed down, the market was not trading properly. So you didn't know what the actual NAV was. There was huge disconnects between the price of the ETF and the underlying asset values. These are all things that you should be aware of that have happened in the past with these ETFs. The discount premium is a, um, it can confuse people. You think discount cheap, premium expensive. I, the word I use is arbitrage band, and I know that sounds even worse. But basically, <laughs> basically, how wide is it before somebody steps in and goes, okay, the price of the ETFs drifted away from the NAV enough that I'm going to go buy the ETF and sell the underlying or vice versa? 
that arbitrager is only going to do it when it's worth it to them. So how wide does that get before they act? Now, it's going to the more exotic and less liquid the holdings, the wider it's going to get. So the premium discount arguably is another cost of accessing that market. You're not going to see big premiums discounts on like SPY or IVV. There's going to be like a couple basis points, but you will see them on other exotic products. Those will definitely go in line with the exoticness of the holdings. So they're not necessarily bad. It's just something, again, you need to know. And in this case, we, we look at for two things, right? So we're looking for anytime there's massive spikes. So we're talking 20% differences um, between the, the NAV and the price. So that's just to alert you that there have been spikes in the past. And then also we're looking for an average discount premium over a given time period that's relatively high. So over the time period, this is never really as close to the NAV as, say, the S&P 500 is. And part of that is just because of the underlying assets, like Eric said. If you're investing in Japanese equities, uh, they're not trading at the same time that U.S. market is trading. So there's a little bit less ability to do those arbitrage trading mechanisms. Okay, so this last one is like leverage in that it can get really thick really quickly. Potential futures roll costs. What's that, Eric? Yeah, so this is probably the one that I think is the most important because a lot of the products that hold futures, forget the volatility. I mean, those sound dangerous. They are dangerous. But like, there's an ETF out there called the United States Oil Fund. It sounds pretty innocent. When oil was down a couple of years ago, I had a friend texting me, how can I play the oil rebound? And they were buying USO. That... That, that does not really do justice to what it does. So when you have to hold oil futures, you have to roll them. As the one month gets closer, nobody wants oil delivered to their house. So everybody bails of that contract, and it, and it decays as, as, as it gets closer to when it expires. So then you got to sell that one. The ETF has to go buy the next one out, which is more expensive. When you're selling low and buying high over and over and over- <laughs> Something's not going to work Yeah, for you. you are corroding the returns. Yeah. So USO will have a- uh, we call it roll costs of 20 to 30% a year. And if it said the United States oil plus crippling contango roll costs or whatever, that would be fine. Maybe we wouldn't have to have this system, but it doesn't. So it says roll- USO, which sounds pretty the, tame. The oil fund. Yeah. 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 Which, you know, bigger meta picture here, which we've talked about before, is that's the ultimate risk with ETFs is something can be a wolf in sheep's clothing. Yeah. And that is. The futures roll cost, automatic three. We don't want anyone to get concerned, you know, to worry about this. Plus the taxation, if you hold the ones that actually hold futures, you've got different taxation issues. And then there's one that leverage on top of that. And then some of those are ETNs. So those are the ones that actually start adding up and get into like eight, nine, ten infractions. Red light. That's not to say that some of these ETFs aren't really good at what they're doing. For example, if my grandma's investing in the markets, she shouldn't be investing in a VIX ETN that's as a long-term investment. But if you're a hedge fund or a trader and you're trying to hedge your volatility risk, a VIX ETF such as VXX is a really good investment for what they're trying to do. And that's what the the system is trying to do. It's trying to say that this is an alert. You should be aware of this. Um, if you are aware of it and you're still okay with it, go ahead. So ETF stoplight system, where can I find it? Well, it's on the Bloomberg terminal. Uh, that's where James and I publish all our research. However, not only can you find it there, if you email me, I'll send you uh, a copy of it. It's ebalchunas at bloomberg.net. And we want it to get out there. It, it's, it's on the terminal. We write to it, but it's okay that it goes out. It's a simple, think, universal thing, right? Yeah, it's a universal thing. We think that there should be an independent body doing this and maybe not the SEC or the issuers. So I think that's uh, a, there's a need for it. And if it's not this system, maybe it'll spark somebody else to do it. Or people will just get into, into thinking about ETFs in terms of having 
nuanced or five levels mm-hmm. of safe and dangerous and not just these are good, these are bad. Green, yellow, red. James, there. Thanks. Thanks for listening to Trillions. Until next time, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal, Bloomberg.com, Apple Podcasts, and a bunch of other places I probably haven't heard about yet. We'd love to hear from you. We're on Twitter. I'm at Joel Weber Show. Eric's at Eric Balchunas. James is at J-S-E-Y-F-F. Trillions is produced by Magnus Hendrickson with a lift from Topher Forez this week. Francesca Levy is the head of Bloomberg Podcast. Bye. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to help realize a mission to Mars. Become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Invesco Distributors, Inc. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at cuttereconomicforum.com.